Chasing Lights Chapter 14 How do you know that change has happened? I walked home from work on a cold, dark night with no moon on a stretch of road through a shallow valley with almost no streetlights. Some light reflected off the icy snow, but less than usual. It was below zero, so the snow squeaked loudly under my feet. I walked on the shoulder of the road where cars threw cold black slush off their tires. The sky was thick with stars, but I didn't stare at them for long. I was told as a child that the Inuits believed that looking up at the northern lights would kill you. Most Westerners assumed that this was merely a superstitious belief in the evil spirits of the lights reaching down and taking your soul if you stared too long. As most Western assumptions, that was mostly incorrect. Staring up at the sky on a cold winter's night can kill you. Parkas work essentially by keeping warm air contained around the body. The fastest way to cool off, then, is to unbutton the top so that the warm air escapes upwards as if it's going up a chimney and it is then replaced by new cold air from below. When it's below zero, however, there is little need to cool off so the buttons stay closed. However, when someone looks up at the sky, their hood falls off their head and their chin lifts off the top of the collar to create a perfect escape route for warm air. At first, there's no real harm, but the longer one looks up, the colder your body becomes. At some point, the parka becomes a freezer and gives no protection from hypothermia and death if one is too far from home. I looked up again, just to check the hill that was ahead of me. You know, it's always a surprise. No matter how many times I see it, a shaft of green light shot across the sky faster than a rocket. I jumped, not knowing what it was at first, but more lights followed it, not sedate this time. The lights were the fastest fireworks ever seen, with shafts and curtains dancing from horizon to horizon. Something about the lights this time made my heart ache. There was something in them that I longed to be a part of somehow. I, I started to run fast, my backpack bouncing on the back and my shoes slipping from time to time. I kept chasing after the lights. My breath was hard enough that I started to taste blood and yet I kept running faster. The lights danced around me, always out of reach and always beckoning. And without thinking, I began to laugh between breaths. And at the top of the hill, I finally stopped in place, still looking up and breathing the sharp air. I held my arms out wide as if I could hold the lights in my arms. A few cars drove by and I stopped looking up. I tied my scarf a little tighter around my neck and walked home quickly, feeling warm from the chase. It's difficult 
not to believe that those curtains of light aren't spirits or that they weren't showing me a path towards change. Depression is a sneaky sort of illness. It is particularly good at disguising itself with reasonableness. I'm depressed because I don't have a good job, or I'm depressed because someone was mean to me, or I'm depressed because life is unfair. Now, those are all reasonable and probably linked to something that is sad. But underneath, the deep waters of depression don't diminish unless they are addressed directly. The deeper they are, the more that help is required. Now, my mother bravely sought out help from a therapist in Los Angeles. And for a month, she stayed at my aunt's house and did the hard work to get out of the pool. At home, the rest of us did the best we could. My siblings and I were older now and able to handle things, but it was the first time she had gone away for more than a day. I was glad that she was getting help, but also uncertain. Was she going to leave forever? Was she unhappy because of me? I'm not sure where those questions were hatched in my mind. My parents had been there for me my entire life. And now I felt insecure about everything in the future. To add to my confusion, I was beginning to see my parents as something other than my parents. They were people. After dinner, I walked with my father. We wound our way through the neighborhood on the way to the convenience store to pick up dessert for everyone. Even before my mother went to L.A., I loved those walks, but they became more important with her gone. Dad tried to keep the conversation focused on me and my future. He would imagine out loud what my life would be like at school and maybe tell me a story about his college years. He was anxious about Mom. It was easy to see that. He tried to be strong for me, and I tried to be strong for him. Neither of us was particularly opaque about our feelings, but we did what we could. It felt manly, somehow. There weren't the usual amount of talking between us. Instead, our time was filled with meaningful pauses, unfinished sentences, and hands firmly placed on shoulders. We were standing on the edge of a cliff, looking out over an unknown sea. Of course, I knew that my father was frightened and that he was feeling more at sea than me. I saw how this was a deep crack in the foundation of his life. I wanted to hug him and tell him it would be okay, even though I had no idea it would be. It wasn't until many years later, facing a divorce and the loss of my own family, that I fully understood the abyss he looked at while we walked to the quick stop. A few weeks later, my mother came home. She was happier and more at peace than ever before. Dad did not contain his joy, and I felt like I could breathe again. She was home and smiling. In her luggage was a cage covered by a cloth. When she placed the cage next to the dining room table, she pulled the cloth off, and inside was a parrot. 
a beautiful Amazon green. It started to make a very loud noise that sounded like a telephone busy signal. And over the noise, my mother explained that this was a rescue parrot. It was spending most of its life under a blanket to keep it quiet. She could see how depressed the bird was and how much it needed some love, acceptance, and light. And it was a very sociable bird. Its other noises included police sirens, dog barks, whistles, and the meowing of cats. It knew quite a few words, some of them more pleasant than others. It liked to tell us to shut up repeatedly. It learned our names and would say hello whenever we walked into the room. It was allowed to fly free throughout the house and would often perch on my mom's shoulder. The parrot was a bit of an empath as well, and his moods always reflected ours. Not wanting to be left out, if there was any argument, he would jump right in and yell right along with us. He often flew around the house, then land on your head, flex his claws on your scalp, then fly to another corner, screaming the entire time. My mom rescued it, and it found freedom and sunlight with us. But it never lost its surly attitude. And I realized that things were happening for the last time. The long, cold winter dragging into May was likely the final one, as I was going to move outside to the south soon. I wouldn't be talking to a parrot for very long. I, I wouldn't be in high school for long. Time with my parents, my brother, my sisters, my jobs, and my friends was winding down. I was already moving on to the next thing. In 1973, George Lucas released his first blockbuster movie. It had nothing to do with science fiction or galaxies far, far away. Instead, American Graffiti focused on a group of teenagers about to become adults in a small town of Modesto, California in the early 1960s over one long night. Most of the film, they are driving up and down the main street, listening to the famous disc jockey Wolfman Jack and navigating relationships as two characters figure out if they are going to college or not. I liked seeing it for the first time my last year at home and felt that it was strangely familiar. On weekend evenings, we would slowly drive up and down Northern Lights Boulevard, listen to REO Speedwagon, Rush, and Journey on the radio, and stop at every light. It was a constant traffic jam that we all chose to participate in. The only lights we saw came from the brakes of cars in front of us, the cool kids drove Pontiac Trans Ams or Chevy Camaros with their grilled taillights and rear spoilers. Even on the coldest nights, the guys wore tight t-shirts and the girls wore bright red or yellow jeans. Someone usually stood on the front seat and out through the open sunroof. They would wave their hands and yell at everyone else who was hanging out of their cars. It looked like a movie, but unlike a movie, it was boring. Friends and I would stare out the window and ask different versions of the same question. So, uh, what are we going to do now? Despite the promise of excitement, it was aimless. We longed desperately for something to happen and felt the pressure of limbo acutely. 
even when one of my friends drove a cool vintage Porsche of his dad's once, none of us felt cool. We felt stupid. It was enough to convince everyone that we wanted to be the character played by Richard Dreyfus in American Graffiti, who leaves for college. But for the moment, we were still stuck in traffic. One afternoon at the record store, a beautiful woman in her 20s walked in. In town for two days, she worked in a small village in the bush. This was her trip to the big city. The recreation center in her village had sent her to buy some sound equipment, and I got to help her out. She talked about her job and how little time she had for herself, and yet how she loved what she was doing because it was important. However, she also wanted to do more normal 20-something things sometimes, and as a 17-year-old, I thought I understood what that meant and nodded sympathetically. I liked her right away. She asked me if I would like to go out to dinner with her, and without thinking, I quickly said yes. After I closed the store, she and I walked to the rental car. She asked, where should we go to eat? I had no idea. Uh, but of course, she needed me to tell her where to go. She didn't live there. I, I started racking my brain for ideas as she drove out of the parking lot and onto Northern Lights Boulevard, and all I could think of was a little Italian place I had been to years before. I told her where to go and held my breath, hoping that it was still there. I relaxed a little as she pulled into the restaurant parking lot. We walked in and kicked off the snow that was on our shoes and shrugged off our coats. There were a few people eating dinner in their booths, but the place was mostly quiet. We were shown to our seats and given menus. The table was covered with a checkered tablecloth and had an old Chianti bottle with a candle in it. It was a stage set from the Walt Disney animated movie Lady and the Tramp. I started to feel nervous again. Now we ordered dinner and we talked easily. She told me more about her work in the village she lived in and reluctant to talk about things that I was doing in high school, I focused on asking her questions. She seemed to want to talk and I didn't mind listening. At some point, the pasta arrived, and then I heard my father's voice behind me. Who's your girlfriend, Gunner? I could also hear my mother laughing. They were having dinner in the booth behind us. Now, finished with their meal, they stood up, introduced themselves to my date, and paid their bill and left. They giggled. It dawned on me now that this was a date. This was a date with a woman old enough to rent her own car. She was attractive and smart and smiling at me. And going on a date with a woman like that had never happened before. I, I didn't understand how I got there. The pressure lifted though. It didn't bother my date that I was a teenager. She probably knew all along and I'm pretty sure she just wanted some company and a recommendation for a decent place to eat. We finished, split the check, and then she drove me home. I never saw her again. When my father told the story, he described me as very cool and romantic. To him, it was proof that beautiful women threw themselves at me. It used to bother me that he said something that was such an exaggeration. 
It doesn't bother me anymore. I had no idea how to be interesting or attractive to women, and even less about how to be romantic. I tried to figure it out, and usually I tried too hard. A friend of my sister had recently broken up with her boyfriend, and I was encouraged to ask her to the prom. I knew and liked my sister's friend and was curious about what the prom was like. I called her and asked her if she would like to go, and she did. So we now had a friend date for the prom. I then got to work. I had to buy tickets. I had to rent a tux, order a corsage, make dinner reservations, and get a driver's license. I I had neglected to get a license before, mostly because I didn't have time or a car. Renting a limousine for the night seemed very expensive and impractical, so I opted for the license. I had driven with supervision and a learner's permit for a couple of years, so I wasn't too worried about the test itself, except for one thing. During breakup, the roads are mostly ice, and much of the driving is actually controlled sliding. Starts and stops could get sloppy no matter how experienced a driver might be. And during the test, with a dour examiner in the passenger seat taking notes, I stayed as conservative as I could with my driving, but there were a couple of small spins. But apparently... The examiner was understanding, and now I was licensed to drive. A prom is overwhelming with all the various rules and traditions, and up to that point, a dance for me went showing up at a gym, decorated with streamers and maybe a mirror ball on the ceiling. I I don't think I had ever really dressed up for one before. A tuxedo rental shop is a dangerous place for a teenage boy to be. Now, if you understand or or want to understand the notion of understatement, friends of mine went for the flamenco-style frilly collars in bright colors and bell-bottom slacks. Some wore a white or even a lime green tuxedo. I managed to restrain myself a little, but I did indulge in an ambition I had from the first time I saw a Fred Astaire movie, Tales. I rented full Edwardian cutaways. And on a cold Saturday night, I stepped up into the cab of my dad's Ford pickup truck wearing tails, bow tie, cummerbund, and shiny black shoes. I believe I also had a carnation in the lapel. There is a lyric in Don McLean's song, American Pie, that runs through my head every time I remember that night. I was a lonely teenage Bronken buck with a pink carnation and a pickup truck. But I knew. I was out of luck. I got to my date's house and knocked on the door with the plastic box holding a corsage in my hand. She opened the door, beautiful in her pale green prom dress. And even though everyone knew we were just friends, her parents insisted I come in. I was referred to as her young man, and we were photographed together in front of the staircase. Her father admired my tales, but I suspect He might have laughed a bit after we left. My date put on her corsage and parka and then went to my dad's truck. I opened the door for her, then jumped to the other side to drive her to dinner. Downtown, I had arranged a reservation at a place called Elevation 92. I had never been to it before, but always imagined it to be a restaurant in a tall building with a commanding view of the mountains and Cook Inlet. I was confused then when I pulled up to a one-story, flat-roofed building with a minimal parking lot. 
92, it turned out, was correct. It was 92 feet above sea level because it was built on the side of a hill that sloped down to the mudflats and the mouth of Ship's Creek. Not impressive. We walked in and up to the hostess. I detected a repressed smile. <laughs> she led us to our seats past the other diners who smiled as we walked past. I felt very elegant, but of course, the only time when clothes like mine were seen anymore was during weddings, proms, or on butlers. At least my date looked like she knew how to dress up in the late 20th century. Now looking at our menus, we tried to make decisions. It was expensive, but I was fully armed with a fat nylon wallet. My date, however, only wanted salad. Torn between two feelings, uh, regretful that I couldn't be the big man buying something lavish, but grateful that I would save some money, I ordered something light as well. After dinner, we made our way to the Sheraton Hotel Ballroom. Now, strangely, after all the buildup, the dance itself was disappointing. And after time with friends and a few stiff dances, it was time to go. We put on our coats and walked outside to the parking lot. It was snowing. The streetlights revealed the flakes as they came straight down and covered every surface with a slick film of white. In my hard shoes and her high heels, we slipped as we walked to the truck and held on to each other to stay upright. At the truck door, we stomped the snow off, got in. The engine started easily, but the inside of the cab was very cold. It was going to be a while before our breath stopped being visible. The snow was soft enough that the windshield wipers easily cleared our view forward. Adjacent to Northern Lights, the parking lot opened directly onto a four-lane, one-way portion of the road. Traffic was heavy and fast. It took a while for me to find enough room to enter. I was trying to be cool and not let on that this was one of my first solo drives. Part of me was aware that I wanted to have a closer relationship with her, but she seemed distant. I thought the recent breakup with her boyfriend was weighing on her. I imagined that if we had a perfect prom date together, that maybe our relationship could turn into something more. The snow swirled around each car as they sped past at 45 miles an hour. The gaps between cars didn't allow for a slow buildup of speed. I therefore needed to accelerate quickly while I made a 90-degree turn. We chatted as we waited, and suddenly it looked like there was enough room, so I quickly pulled out onto the road. The rear tires, they began to slip. Normal for Alaska, but when I steered into the skid, it didn't pull us out. Instead, the truck kept turning, spinning like a turntable. Nothing I did with the steering wheel or the brakes made any difference. Quietly, we spun around in our own merry-go-round several times. The cars behind us had stopped and patiently waited while their headlights lit us up like a movie set. Finally, we stopped, and I started to drive again down Northern Lights towards her neighborhood. We didn't talk much. I suspect we both felt that something notable had just happened. This was something that we would tell stories about for the rest of our lives. 
Of course, she didn't become my girlfriend. That may be because I never asked her. Wearing a tuxedo and almost getting us killed in a car accident apparently was not enough for someone to throw themselves at me. Intimacy with someone like her was probably more frightening than spinning around on northern lights. I saw her again when I visited at Christmas five years later. A group of old friends got together at a bar not far from where the prom was held. We had all left home and had begun our lives in cities far apart from each other. And for most of the night, my prom date and I sat together and shared how our lives were evolving. I had to leave at one point, so I said goodbye to everyone and got up, but she was near the glass door at the entrance. I could see that snow had started to fall. We kissed for the longest time. She went back to our friends in the bar and I went home. Things changed, but I am still afraid. <laughs>